0: Hello, my name is Dotun Holoporoku, and this is Building the Future podcast. I believe the African story will be written by Africans, and there are people crafting the narrative now. This podcast is a series of conversations with people whose ideas and work is shaping the African future. My guest today is Andrew Ali. Andrew is a real-life and virtual mentor to a lot of investment professionals in Africa. He is the partner and group CEO at Southbridge, a Pan-African financial advisory firm. Before then, he was the president and CEO of the Africa Finance Corporation, where he was responsible for over $4.5 billion of investment in 30 countries. Andrew's career is an inspiration and signpost to upcoming African investors like me and it was a real pleasure to deep dive into how it got started and the lessons learned till date. We also talked about how to reduce investment risk through temporal and geographical diversification and the importance of strong ESG framework in a weak socio-political environment that most African countries operate in. I really enjoyed this conversation with Andrew and I hope You do too. Andrew, welcome to Building the Future podcast.
1: Thank you. My pleasure to be on your show.
0: Great. We have a lot to unpack. You're one of the interesting persons that I've known from afar and I've interacted with a few times that we met in several places. And and I've always been fascinated by your insights and by your knowledge and also by your experience. A lot of that we'll be unpacking today. But I want to start with your journey where you started from. You grew up in a very popular political family with a political father. Uh, And that's all a lot of people know about you and also know that you have experience as a finance person. But let's start with that. Who is Lee, and how did he get to where you are right now?
1: Well, thank you again for uh, your very kind words. You mentioned uh, growing up in a political family. But in fact, the way I see it, I actually grew up in an academically medical family. I had actually left home for boarding school by the time my father got into politics. So to me, my father was a medical doctor, pathologist, a morbid anatomist, and a professor um, of medicine in various universities. And I grew up very much in a medical and academic setting. I spent most of my primary school years in Unibank or in the staff quarters of UPTH, and you know some of my oldest friends, people that I met there. I attended a primary school in Benin, um, went to King's College for my secondary school. So I was in the boarding school up to my O levels, and then I went to the UK uh, to do my A levels again. Growing up in a medical family, I was very much going to become a doctor until at some point I realized that I loved the science of it, but maybe dealing with sick people on a day-to-day basis was not something I really wanted to do. And I then decided to pursue an engineering career. So this epiphany, as it were, happened somewhere around my O-levels, A-levels, when I was choosing the subjects uh, that I wanted to do for...
0: Did you have to have a conversation with your dad about changing change of career, and, and how did yeah. that
1: go? No, my parents were very, if I can say, un-Nigerian, and they were quite okay for me to make those choices. I think the only thing they ever really imposed on me, and even then it was more of a negotiation than an imposition, was at the time I was choosing which subjects to do for my O-levels being somebody who had more of a maths and science bent, I chose essentially all science subjects. And they kind of persuaded me that, you know, I should at least do one non-science subject. We agreed on French, uh, which I did. And, you know, as it turns out, that actually served me quite well in the future. But other than that, they were quite okay and supportive of my choices. Now, Obviously, my choice was to go from medicine. And I think growing up, we'd sort of always assume myself as well that I would go into medicine. And then I was going to engineering, right? So I wasn't going from medicine to, you know, do some dodgy uh, subject like ancient history or something like that, you <laughs> know. Engineering was one of I think the trifecta of degrees that you could do in, in a Nigerian household, you know, yeah. medicine engineering law. So, you know, maybe I wasn't committing, you know, heresy. I was just moving from one religious domain to the other. But actually, I have to say my parents were also very supportive of the academic choices of my siblings as well. And so I don't think it was that. I think they were just generally supportive as long as you were doing well and focusing. They supported that. So it wasn't actually as big an issue as you may think. Well, anyway, so this was in the early 80s. The PC was coming up, and so I was quite interested in that. And I went to go and do a degree in uh, electronics and electrical engineering. The degree program I chose had a very heavy dose of computer science in it and actually you know if I'd chosen some different courses in my final year my degree would have been in uh, computer science so that was very interesting and uh, (laughs) I did quite well in the degree so much so that uh, just before my final year one of my professors recommended me to British Telecom who were looking for interns to sponsor and uh, you know I got chosen (laughs) for that And I went to work for them for the summer, the last summer before I graduated. And uh, during that period, I realized that (laughs) much as I enjoyed and I absolutely enjoyed my engineering degree, I really didn't feel I would enjoy working as an engineer. And the reasons for this is that, one, I like a lot of uh, variety in what I'm doing. And while we had that in the degree course, uh, we were doing probably about eight different subjects per year. And these things range from how to design uh, microchips to how to design electrical grids through business. And, you know, you could do some electives in other departments as well. So it was very varied, but I realized that working as an engineer, you'll be focused on one thing as opposed to doing a, a variety of different. Second issue was that at the time, many of the jobs for electronics software kind of people particularly in the UK were defense related and i really just didn't want to use my talents to figure out uh, how to kill people more efficiently uh the third point was that um, i also figured out working this summer that if you start as an engineer Your career path would then require you to make a transition into quote-unquote management. And I figured, okay, well, why don't I just cut out the middleman and look at getting into management? By management, I mean the business side of things, not necessarily management per se. So why don't I just figure out how to get into the business side of things straight away? So uh, I, I resumed in in university for my final year with a little bit of a crisis, because again, in in UK universities, you start job hunting, basically, you know, the first uh, term you come back from summer holidays. So I, I decided that I didn't want to be an engineer, but, you know, I hadn't figured out what I wanted to be. Luckily, there's a lot of career support in in UK universities, even back in the 80s. And so I was able to figure out that they had these career fairs where different employers would come in. So I attended a few, and I learned about this thing called uh, management consulting, Mm -hmm. which seemed perfect because, you know, it was involved in management, the business side of things. You got to see different companies. You got the variety that I was looking for. So I decided to go into this. And again, being a good Nigerian, I was also looking for what qualification I could have because we like, uh, academical qualifications in Nigeria. So as what qualification can I get that supports this? And after doing some research, I, um, Stumbled across uh, chartered accounting, which in the UK in the 80s very much had a role similar to what an MBA or a CFA has today. And I was able to find a program that allowed you to get the um, chartered accountancy qualification while working as a management consultant. And this was at the accounting firm Coopers and Lybrand. Uh, so I joined them, and I worked with them for. A little bit over three years while I was getting this uh, Chartered Accounting. Uh,
0: and it's called PwC now, right? Yes. So
1: Coopers and Lybrand merged with Waterhouse to become a
0: PwC
1: sometime uh, well after I had left. Right. I, I did a number of interesting assignments. I did some stuff for the uh, UK Minister of Defence, which I don't think I'm allowed to talk about now. <laughs> I did some financial modeling of the uh, UK's, so this was pre-privatization of the UK power industry, and I I did some modeling of the, basically the nuclear uh, power generation, so the nuclear reactors that that, the UK had, and uh, it was really to find out how much it would cost to run them, and in particular to decommission them all. And this was one of the inputs to the decision not to privatize the power, of the reactors when they privatized the rest of the power sector in the eighties or early nineties. I can't remember exactly now when. And that became British energy or eventually, and it was eventually sold off, but not initially. So that was a very interesting assignment. Um, but one of my assignments, because of needing to get the chartered accountancy qualification and the work experience requirements, I didn't only work in the consulting arm of Coopers. I worked in the auditing end and also in the insolvency end. And I worked on some very interesting. Projects, including, again, the largest insolvency in the UK at that time. Anyway, one of my clients was an investment banker called Schroders. And since working with them, I thought, oh, you know, this looks quite uh, interesting. And so when I got my qualification, I looked for a job in uh, investment banking. And in this, I was lucky enough to get one with a company called SG Warburg. Uh, S.G. Warburg today is part of UBS, but at the time was a sort of leading UK independent full-service investment bank. And so I I joined them and I I worked with them for about three years. I did quite a number of different assignments.
0: And what was your primary role? What did you join them as? My primary role, so I was called a corporate
1: finance uh, executive. So I was in their mergers and acquisitions uh, department, essentially. Right. And in terms of the role, you know, my role was really doing, you know, mostly the financial analysis. So building the models drafting the term sheets, drafting the merger documents, helping to structure, doing all the background work that the directors, as they were called, who would be the partners or, or the managing directors in, in other banks, you know, would use in terms of interacting with the clients or helping the clients to negotiate with other people. And I think one of the things that I talk about a lot is the importance of getting very solid, foundational experience. Now, yes. I was lucky in the sense that, you know, I had no idea about this, but just by luck, I was able to get it. So, you know, my three years at Cooper's and Librand I As I mentioned, I was doing the chartered accounting uh, qualification, so I had to learn about accounting, both uh, financial accounting, that is preparing accounts for companies, management accounting, which is using accounting to manage your company. I learned a bit about tax. Uh, I learned a bit about economics. I learned a bit about law, all of which uh, were very, very helpful or have been very, very helpful in my career. But I think the important thing is that you not only learn these things academically and do exams, but you also are practicing them, particularly the accounting side, you're practicing them as you're doing your work as well. So you really get a solid foundation.
0: I was about to actually ask that, actually, maybe we need to unpack that a little bit. There's an interesting shift from you training as an engineer, working a little bit as an mm -hmm. engineer, and then going into management consulting and learning to be an accountant, and all skill set that you have there. How was that shift for you, both mentally, and what are the key contributions that you have from your rego as an engineer, and, and how did that shape you being an accountant and money consultant?
1: Well, you know, one of the interesting things is that if you looked at the success rates in the chartered accounting exams, at least at the time I was doing it, I don't know if it's the same today, the highest pass rates, I, I think it may have been people who were maths graduates, hmm. followed by people who were engineering graduates. And actually, the people who were accounting graduates were quite low down in terms of the pass rates. Interesting. If you look at a lot of the people who are successful in, in the financial sector, many of them have engineering backgrounds. And I think engineering is a very, very solid discipline in terms of understanding, first of all, maths, uh, science, how things work, learning how to think. The, the sort of maths that I did in my engineering degree, I have to say that, you know, uh, complex things like, you know, second order partial differential equations, Fourier transforms, transforms, things like that. I've never come across in my entire business degree. Maybe if you're some quant in in a hedge fund, you're using these things in a day-to-day basis. But the point is, if you can cope with this, you can definitely cope with preparing a set of accounts and all that kind of so actually the transition from engineering wasn't that difficult even even law which is many people see as the antithesis of engineering yeah even law actually is really built on logic so the sort mm-hmm. of logic that you're using in maybe building uh integrated circuits so and gates and or gates and nor gates, gates and all those kind of things or the logic that you use in building up a computer program, actually that same logic applies to law and uh, constructing a legal document. Uh, You know, people may not quite see it, but there's a kind of language you use, there are terms you use, just in the way in a computer program you define variables, in in a legal agreement you define terms that you then use later on. Uh, So there are actually a lot of similarities uh, even there. So I was learning new things, but building on a a foundation of what I'd learned in in engineering. And then the the stuff I learned in in terms of accounting, I was then able to build on in my time in in S.G. Warburg, where I was doing a lot of building financial models. The the basic construct of a financial model is the uh, P&L account, the balance sheet and the cash flow statement and what you do with those. So having a basis in accounting and understanding how these things come together then allows you to build up those skills. And then building up those skills, again, if you think about it, really allows you to understand a little bit more the dynamics of how companies work because you see that, okay, if if, if the revenue increases, but the margins aren't great, then it's not really helping you to generate cash flow. So those sorts of things that were things that I was able to pick out now a lot of people and i think i'm guilty of this as well when you know maybe in a job interview or something you know say and they asked about their career they they make it sound like i sat down when i was 18 and planned all this out but of course you know there was a bit of luck there was a bit of serendipity you know i didn't know all this stuff in advance but it it worked out for me
0: so i was about to say i think i tell people choosing maybe you not know, to choose a course to to study maybe in the UK most of the time and they don't know and what to study I say okay, if you're good in maths you don't know what to study you don't know you cannot plan your career because a lot of things are serendipity a lot of things are luck a lot of a chance but if you want to choose something that, you, that can give you a template just study maths <laughs> maths gives you a lot of, of the need to explore different things afterwards because then you're good numeric if you're good numeric skills and you're good in logic, then you can excel in any career.
1: Yes, I agree with that. One thing I think that engineering didn't really give me and that I had to work on and you know, even till today I don't know how good I am at it, is really around written skills, presentations, writing, you know, language. Those things become more important as you progress. As you progress in, in a career the harder skills like building a financial model actually become less important because typically you would have an analyst who is doing that. Right. You still have to understand it. And I mean, so nowadays I, I probably couldn't put together uh, any kind of complicated Excel spreadsheet, but I can sort of look at one and tell if there's an error very often just because the numbers aren't quite working. You do X. And what comes out is Z instead of maybe Y. So there's a kind of gut feel you build up from a lot of experience. So I have that. But, you know, honestly, I, I couldn't do a pivot table to save my life. But there are some very smart analysts and associates that I work with who know all those kind of things. So but being able to present yourself, being able to express yourself, being able to persuade people. Being able to write well and clearly are things that become much more important as you progress in your career, and those are some of the things that uh, an engineering degree is not as strong at. We did have to write reports, and we did have to do things, and and probably a maths degree is even less strong in that area. But I love maths. You know, I think maths is really the language of the universe. I really like it. But like everything in life, there's no one thing I think that is a silver bullet. Going back to your point on careers, I think the the thing around careers is really to build building blocks. And people talk about transferable skills. There are certain building blocks that you need, and there are certain of those building blocks which are common across almost any career path you take, and then there's some that are specific. Uh, for different career paths, but building those building blocks. And I think, you know, the value of actual experience and doing things and actually doing things over and over again, so mm-hmm. they become ingrained in you are things that people seem to, you know, downplay nowadays. And I mean, again, in my previous jobs, you've had people who have two master's degrees from very good schools, but you know, have work experience that is uh, you know, a couple of summer jobs and they will, you know, expect to come in at the same level as somebody who has been doing the work for you know three, four, five years. And really it's a very difficult thing because yeah, they have all these paper qualifications, but if you put them on a the desk in front of a computer and said, okay, why don't you build a financial model, They probably won't do as good a job as the person who's been doing it, you know, for the last two, three years. And so, you know, it's very hard to bring them in that position when they actually can't do the work. But of course, they're looking at, especially if you're a Nigerian, thinking, well, you know, he only has a bachelor's degree, I have two master's degrees, why are they paying him more than me, you know, whatever. So I think that practicality is something that we're missing, and we've become a little bit too focused on academics. Now academics are very important, and you know I wouldn't have gotten where I was without degrees and, and good grades in those uh, good degrees. But I think like a- anything, there's a point where you get diminishing returns, and that applies to academic qualifications
0: as well. We, we don't. Start with the first question and we've gone into a lot of deep things that you said about career, serendipity, the, the benefit of having a very good foundation, learning skills at the beginning and also maybe prioritizing experience, job more than academic qualification, especially if academic qualification gives you that leg in the door and you need to build yourself mm-hmm. up by the experience that you get for yourself. Now I want to move a little bit further by looking at your journey, actually, you have a very interesting journey in the sense that you worked in the UK, you work at UBS, uh, now UBS. You then moved to, uh, to Nigeria in 1996, I assume, to run IFC in Lagos. No, no, I didn't actually. So I was
1: in Warburg about three years. And as I said, it was one of the top banks in, in the UK. So I was very lucky to be involved in many transactions. And, and, you know, I mean, one of the things that really gave me a boost was every morning you pick up the FT, which was the paper, the Financial Times, which was the paper for the sort of, you know, finance and business world. And, you know, on the front page, <laughs> very often there would be, you know, the transaction you were working on the night before and tended to work a lot of late nights doing the job I was doing. But, I, you know, I really enjoyed it. But after three years, you know, I was yearning for something different. And in particular, I wanted to do two things. Uh, one was to work more in emerging markets because the job was very focused on the UK and European markets. and We did one or two transactions in, in North America, but not very many. And the second was to move from being an advisor to being a principal. So rather than advising people what to do to actually putting, you know, my money where my mouth was, I decided to effect that career change by doing an MBA. And so I went to INSEAD which is uh, the leading business school in Europe and, and one of the top schools in the world. And I did the MBA in 95 and I joined the I- IFC. And, and I mean, again, talking about serendipity the the IFC thing I started in January of 95 but I, I left my job a little bit earlier and I spent some time in Paris improving on my French and by the way I just said that the French my parents coerced me into proved useful in getting into India because you needed a certain uh, degree of French to get admission and the French I'd done for my O-levels was the foundation that I used to do that. But I had gotten in, I'd gotten enough French for that, but I wanted to improve it. So I went to Paris three months before the course started and signed up for a course. And of course, you know, three months in Paris is not, not a bad thing to do. Um, but anyway, one day I decided to go down to Inciad, which is in Fontainebleau. It's about an hour, hour and a half outside Paris. So I decided to go down to just check it out, see about accommodation. And uh, I went into the student cafeteria and there was somebody, a friend of mine who might know, you know, for a long time, but hadn't been in touch with. So I didn't know if she was in India. So I was like, oh, you know, hello. And uh, what's happening? Is it, oh, you know, I'm just about to graduate. Uh, Where are you going? Well, I'm going to join this organization called the IFC. What's the IFC? Well, she explained it to me. And I was like, oh, bingo, this sounds exactly (laughs) like what I'm so, with with her help and i owe a lot to her not only for sort of pointing this out i mean i you know ifc used to come and i believe still does come onto campus to recruit so i probably would have heard of them at some point but this really got it into my mind and you know i thought about it and she gave me some guidance uh, around you know going through the interviews so i left uh, in with an offer from from the ifc and I, i couple of the leading consultancies uh, but I chose to go to the IFC. Um, so I joined the IFC in 96 in the Washington office right. I was based in Washington for about six years actually. I started off working on oil and gas projects in the oil and oil gas and mining department. And, you know, I did quite a few uh, deals around the world and that got me to places from Argentina to Albania to various places on the Indian subcontinent. And was that investing or advising? No, this was investing. So this was uh, principally making loans, but also doing equity investments in in oil and gas uh, companies and different companies around the world. The way it was structured in those days, anyway, the industry groups tended to be global. And then you had the regional groups, which are much more around business development. So anyway, I did the oil and gas for about three and a half years. And I did quite a few very interesting transactions. I did one or two in Africa as well. I I financed Shell for some of their Activities in Cameroon, most notably, didn't do an awful lot in Nigeria because at the time it wasn't really open, Uh, at least for international investors. You know, it was after Abacha just uh, executed Ken Saro River, so it wasn't really very much in the uh, sort of lexicon of what uh, international investors, especially ethical ones, uh, wanted to do. But, you know, we still were engaged in Nigeria and tried to do some things that didn't involve, uh, involve the military government. But anyway, I then moved to the telecoms uh, department, still based in Washington, but, you know, very much more focused on Africa and a little bit on on the Indian subcontinent as well. You know, it was there that, for example, I started working on IFC's investment uh, in Nigeria in the telecom space, which became an investment in MTN Nigeria. Uh, among other things. Now, at that time, so obviously, Nigeria had transitioned to democracy in 99. And based on that, the World Bank Group, including the IFC, was looking to step up its activities in Nigeria. And for whatever reason, I came to the attention of the CEO of of IFC at the time and you know he basically asked me to go and run the office and and the remit was really to expand the scope of what IFC was doing. In 2002 I actually came back to Nigeria with the IFC as the country manager and you know I ran that office And we were reasonably successful. We we tripled the size of the portfolio. We did quite a number of interesting deals. And then I moved to run the office in South Africa with responsibility for the Southern Africa region. So I was in charge of eight countries. I did that for a little bit over a year. And then I left the IFC. To set up private equity fund with a friend of mine uh, called Osaze Osipo. Sadly, he passed away some years ago. Uh, The fund was called Travant. And, you know, we were successful in in raising a fund. We raised over $100 million to invest in West Africa.
0: And And what was your thesis?
1: For so, so this was, this was a general PE fund, right. you know, and the thesis was really around the growth. I mean, you have to remember that this was in sort of 2007, 2008, and Nigeria had been going through probably its best period of growth ever, but certainly a very good period of growth. And the rest of West Africa was also doing quite well. So we closed the fund in, in, in 2008 which led to some issues with some of our LPs, some of our biggest investors.
0: So can I double click on that, please? Why did you close yes, the fund? Because I know no, it's kind
1: no, of say When you say close the fund, yes. in terms of fundraising, I mean, you know, we finished the fundraising. Oh, right. We actually raised the fund and we got to the first close of the fund. So... When you're closing the fund to other investors, essentially, but uh, 2008, one of our biggest investors started to have problems and couldn't sort of fulfill their obligations, like right. because of the financial crisis. So things didn't quite work out as well for Travant, uh, at least as a fund manager, as as they ought to have. At the time, I was also approached to join the AFC. As the CEO, so I left uh, Travanc uh, to join the AFC, and I joined the AFC in, in I believe, November of uh, 2008. And obviously, I had a reasonably successful tenor in the AFC. We sort of expanded the balance sheet by about five times. We we got uh, we got a very good credit rating, the second best actually in Africa. We were able to do some very landmark transactions in, in a number of countries and build the partnership. So I did that. I was there for 10 years, which was the, the tenor limit. And I left in 2018. And since then, I joined a group called Southbridge, which is a pan-African financial services firm. We focus on advisory right now. So I guess in a way, I've come Uh, full circle back to, back to advisory work. And uh, right now with the COVID crisis, we've been doing a lot of work and advising governments and uh, various uh, multilateral African multilaterals or African DFIs on how they can respond to COVID. But we also, you know, do private sector work as, as well. I'm also on a couple of boards. So again, another full circle having worked with IFC on their investment in MTN back on the board of MTN Nigeria. I'm also on the board of the Development Bank of Nigeria which is a Nigerian initiated development finance institution aimed at promoting SME finance in the country.
0: There are a couple of questions I really want to explore with you especially on board. I've got that written out here about the skills required to be in a board because you are in a high-profile board, like you mentioned it, MTN. You also the CDC, so Development Bank in yes. Nigeria, which is quite yeah high-profile board membership. And I would well, just want to talk a little bit about that. But before then, I want to talk about Travant, which is like a very sleeve part of your career. Now, leaving a firm, a PE or a VC firm as a partner is not as easy as just resigning right there are a few things i just wanted to just maybe talk through that what was that experience like for you well it wasn't an easy time
1: and as you say it's not quite that simple but at the time given also the funding issues with some of the shareholders and, and what was going on and some other sort of factors which, which I, I can't discuss publicly it was the best thing to do. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, but it was it was a difficult time for for Travant and, and also for for me. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I think the firm uh, made a transition also to doing more advisory work, um, given what happened on the funding side, and still exists today, although it's uh, changed its name now.
0: What what lesson can can you draw for? Uh, a, fund, a prospective fund manager who is raising at this time of COVID or who's got some commitment maybe last year and they're about to close their fund in a, in a in another very big seismic change period with a lot of funders and who might have to change the way they're committing to a fund. What advice would you give them uh, similar to what you had in 2008 with Travant with a lot of investors who couldn't continue their commitments?
1: Well, I mean, if you have investors who couldn't continue with their commitment, then that's like a major problem. And maybe there's not a huge amount you can really do. I mean, depends on where you are in your process. You could sort of try to go through a legal route. But Mm. to be frank, if they don't have money, they don't have money. Taking them to court isn't going to produce money. On the other hand, I think in that situation, you just need to look at whether those that remain have enough money to give you critical mass. On the other hand, though, if you happen to be just closed a fund and you have funders or LPs who have capital, right now might be actually quite a good time to have a fund. On the other hand, if you're, you're going through a transition, valuations have probably come down. They tend to be opportunities in times of turmoil. On the other hand, if you're just about to embark on a fundraising process, this is actually a very difficult time, particularly if you're an African fund manager and if you're an African fund manager who doesn't really have much of a track record. If you want to do it, you need to keep it small, you need to keep it specialized, you need to really have identified people who are likely to fund you um, right off the bat before you even start the fund Raising. And you probably want to look at models where you can have a viable vehicle with a smaller amount of funds. I mean, generalist PE fund, you probably need at least $100 million um, of funds under management to start to be viable. Yeah. And maybe even more. So, but, but there are other models you can follow where you could, you know, have a smaller amount. I mean, I do know quite a few people who have been raising funds, who have been well qualified, and it's, it's been a big struggle for, for very many reasons. So it's something that I would advise people to get into after, you know, having thought about it very carefully and you know to be prepared especially if they don't have you know some sort of anchor already lined up to be prepared to have a very hard slog in terms of raising the fund
0: there has been a lot of talk about return expectation in Africa for PE funds and even for VC, it's quite low. There are very few P that are able to actually return investors' money or achieve the, the multiple target that they set for themselves. And, and there are a lot of things that might contribute to this, sort of macroeconomic factors, so many things that one can attribute that to. But what advice would you give to PE fund managers who are setting out to actually raise a fund? How would they manage expectations? Or how can they actually optimize for a better result?
1: Well, you see, this is one of the reasons why I was saying that it's difficult for African fund managers, because actually the African PE as an asset class uh, hasn't performed very well. And the sort of average returns, uh, it depends on whose study you look at and what period, but essentially the average returns have not been really significantly better. According to some studies, they've even been worse than the returns on, on the American PE. So mm-hmm. if you're sitting with an American potential investor, they their first question is, well, I could invest in American PE and make a return of X according to historical numbers. Why should I take a bigger risk investing in African PE? And we can debate whether it's more risky or not, but you know, that's a perception at least why should I take more risk, invest in African PE for an equal or lower return? And that's a very tough argument to argue against. Really, and I know that this is a chicken and egg, but really the best argument against that is to say, well, here's my track record. Yes, you've been quoting averages. But here's my own particular track record, and it's far better than than the average. And this is the other thing you have to show as a, as somebody trying to raise funds, particularly from, let's say, strangers, people who you don't have some sort of ongoing relationship. Then I also have to be able to show them that here's the pipeline of projects. So if you give me money, this is the sort of thing I will actually invest in. And again, you know, this is the question of um, practical reality, as opposed to theoretical qualifications. So that I think is very important. But I have to say that these things also go in cycles. So you can have the best argument in the world. But if a particular investor hasn't allocated money to invest in Africa, for example, because it's out of fashion, then you're not going to really probably persuade them. And I think that right now Africa is at a low point in the cycle. So this is a hard time to, yeah. to be going to raise money and you need to have some kind of edge in doing that.
0: Yeah. Uh, would you also advise, apart from temporary risk in terms of investing in different cycle, would you also advise geographical diversification of your portfolios? For example, Nigeria now. Nigeria will be going through maybe a tough recession coming soon and then there's the Currency risk in Nigeria. But you're not overly exposed to that economy, then you can also go to other economies as well. But the flip side of that is. There are very few countries in Africa that you want to invest in for funding.
1: Well, diversification is is generally good. But as you say, there are maybe not so many countries. that. I mean, you can do sort of one-off deals in in some of the smaller countries, but you're not going to be able to deploy a whole portfolio into a tiny economy. The, The other issue is that, to be frank, a lot of African countries actually suffer from similar problems. The fact that you've, you've gone and you've invested in you know, Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa doesn't necessarily mean that you're actually, in a way, really diversified, right? Yeah. Because if they all go down at the same time, then it's not diversified. And just some, some countries...
0: So you think they are linked in some cases as well? Like, what happened in yeah, Nigeria... I mean,
1: Well, if you look at it, the South African rand has fallen by, I believe it fell by up to 30% during the COVID crisis. I believe it's recovered some of that. Obviously, there's a lot of pressure on the Naira. Mm. Uh, I haven't looked at the Kenyan shilling, but I, I would dare say that that has also come under pressure over the last few months with COVID. So, you know, if you're trying to diversify, at least against currency devaluation, which actually is one of the major problems that PE funds have found investing in Africa, you make good returns in the local currency, but by the time you convert it to dollars, you know, macroeconomic factors that cause the currencies to fall the returns look, you know, less exciting. So if you're if you're rever- if you're trying to diversify to deal with these foreign currency issues but every country you're in the currencies are actually correlated and fall at the same time. Is that really diversification? I think I agree with that. I'm not saying you shouldn't invest in different countries, but I am saying that you need to be a little bit more nuanced about it. Either way, I mean, I think if you're investing, currency is one of the major issues, so you you need to pay a lot of attention to that. There's no magic bullet to dealing with it, but there are ways you can mitigate against the risks, you know, ranging from how you select The companies you choose to invest in or the projects you choose to invest in to, you know, different ways of hedging either explicitly on the market. So in Nigeria, we have these what they call non-deliverable forwards. That at least give you some measure of ability to hedge on investments. That's actually not available in other markets, but there are other ways that you can maybe try and develop a natural hedge. It's borrowing and funding as much as you can in the local currency, yeah. trying to develop a dollar or hard currency revenue lines in the company uh, are a couple of examples.
0: Are you an executive director of high profile boards and I just want to get your perspective on how much influence and lever can board members pull in that kind of high profile companies or or organizations where those organizations the CEOs and and the management are quite strong on their own what sort of contribution you expected to make as a board member so
1: before I go to the actual question you've asked I think it's important to point out that one of the unspoken success factors in companies' performance is good governance. When I was at the AFC, there was a point where we did an analysis of the companies that were underperforming uh, compared to where we wanted them to be. I think, if I recall correctly, literally 90% of those companies that were underperforming had some kind of governance issue. There are a lot of fancy studies on governance, but I think what governance really boils down to is whether one person is making all the decisions or if the decisions are being made on a diversified basis because group decision-making is very criticized, but making decisions with diverse inputs rather than rubber stamping Is and has been shown to bring out the better decisions. And then the second aspect of governance is, you know, really, are you treating all your shareholders uh, equally? Are you making decisions for the interests of the shareholders as a group, as opposed to specific individuals? And are you trying to optimize those decisions? So, with that in mind, the role of non-executive directors. Is not to get involved in the sort of day to day running of the company. That is the prerogative of management. And many people call me up when they find out I'm the director of X, Y or Z company, trying to get me to either quote unquote put in a good word with them for them, you know, so they, cause they're applying for a job or they're trying to do this, and that. And really in a well governed company and non executive directors don't get involved in those things, you know, because that's just not the role. The role is really working with the management. Well, one of the major roles is actually selecting the management team and managing the management team. So, you know, assessing their performance, setting their targets, etc. The other role is to work with the management team closely in terms of setting the strategy and making sure the strategy is being implemented. The third role is to somehow uh, supervise the, the management team. So in the sense that you set some rules and uh, you then have to make sure that those rules are followed. Those rules could be around procurement, they could be around HR policies, they could be around social and environmental standards, they could be around ethics. Uh, they can be around anti-corruption or, you know, all those different things. But you set those standards, and you sort of monitor them and you monitor them through the use of auditors and through the use of reporting, through the use of more direct means. The other area is that there's certain things that are considered to be, you know, big enough or important enough, or financially material enough that you know the board of directors needs to be involved uh, in decisions. So that's really uh, the role of the board, or at least as part of the role of the board versus part of the management, uh, versus the role of the management. So as a board member, you are not the person doing the annual assessment of the head of corporate affairs of Mm -hmm. of your company um and checking whether they've managed uh that target. But you are the one who is contributing, obviously boards are a collective affair. You are the one who is contributing to setting the policy that if that annual review you know puts that person in the top quartile or decile, Mm -hmm. uh they will get a bonus of X. And if it puts them in the bottom decile, you know, this kind of action will be taken around, you know, their poor performance. So, you know, that may be uh, a succinct way of trying to distinguish between what the board does and
0: what the management does. Just the second part of the question about levers. You mentioned that a lot, but I just want to look into some of the, very strong management comp- uh, in Nigeria, like maybe banks and, and the role of board in helping them or shaping them, or actually maybe not even helping as well. And, and I think what is driving that question is the second part I want to go into, which is ESG. How would advise that someone like me who will be a board member in some companies in Africa because of my job? How would you advise someone like me helping companies to actually be strong on ESG and with the, the limited influence that I have as a board member, in a very weak socio-political environment where they don't have incentive to do that.
1: So as an investor, right, I think the, the first thing to do is you need to make sure that you do certain things before you actually make the investment. Mm-hmm. One of the things is to try to assess whether the company is receptive to these types of things. Before you even do that, you try and assess what, what the company is doing, where they are in this whole thing. And by the way, I mean, ESG is, is a way that you can mitigate risks. So without going into kind of who is responsible and, you know, where all the blame lies, if you take Shell in the Niger Delta, think of how much more money they could have made if they avoided all the pipeline leaks, the pipe production shutdowns. Etc. cetera, caused by environmental and social issues. So one, it's a risk factor. Two, actually, uh, especially nowadays when people are becoming much more conscious about this, it can actually be a, a positive for your business. If you are showing up for your first board meeting or your fifth board meeting, and you suddenly want to start pushing ESG, then mm-hmm. forget about it and it's too late. You needed to have started, as I said, when you're doing your assessment of the company. Part of that assessment is what they're doing, but also their willingness to improve. And again, you know, d- depending on the various circumstances, if they don't seem willing to improve, if they don't seem interested in learning, then, you know, maybe there's just nothing much you can do and either you choose to accept, you know, this current state of affairs or you move on. And that's just the reality of life. You know, sometimes you just can't make that change. The, the next lever that you have is in terms of actually, you know, what conditions you put in around your investment. If it's important to you and you feel they're somehow lacking in it, then you can put in place in your investment agreement, you know, this is one of the things that they undertake to do. Then that then gives you more leverage when you come onto the board to to push these things. But again, if you remember, I said that one of the skills as you kind of progress in your career is the need to be able to present arguments, to be persuasive, etc. And, you know, this is one of those cases because, yes, you can have things that are stated in the agreement, But, you know, you need to use your skills of persuasion to to also, you know, say why this is a good thing and, you know, how they can do it and how they can do it in a way that addresses whatever concerns they may have had, which... You know, might have been preventing them from doing these things.
0: Actually, I noticed that we're quite big on the first lever that you mentioned, which is we assess companies when we're looking at investment in the loan. We have like a huge five, maybe 40 or 50 questions, ESG questions that questionnaire that the company has to fill before we invest. And then we use that to assess where they are. And then we draw, draw a plan which you have to sign when we're doing the investment. And it's embedded in investment agreements that. This is where you are. This is how you're going to make improvement. I think the, the other bit is actually using that soft lever afterwards to convince, okay, you need to be true to this. Not just the letter of it, but the spirit of it, like anti-bribery, anti-corruption, not facilitating things because you think it's going to make your, your stuff go fast to the government, but it could actually be bad for you later down the line. So it's that kind of thing that one has to be very soft about but very influential as a board member. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I'm going to end this conversation with two questions. And the first one is, which book are you reading now or have you read lately?
1: Oh, so I'm reading right now World Order by Kissinger, which frankly okay, is a book I should have read a long time ago. I'm reading by Herman Hesse. Uh, I think it's, it's a philosophical book and I think it's interesting for this age that we're quite, we're going through. I actually read quite a lot of novels. I I just read The Martian, which is about a guy who, you know, an astronaut who inevitably gets abandoned on Mars and has to figure out how to survive there and get rescued, which I found quite interesting. I read quite a bit of uh, science fiction. Yeah,
0: good. Actually, find fiction, good. They actually help to increase your language and your way of describing things and also expand your imagination. And... Said that that's quite interesting that you mentioned that reading novels is is one of the things that you do. The second question is, what view have you changed your mind on now that you
1: used to hold before? Well, I changed my mind on many things, and I actually believe that you know, presented with facts or data, then you should uh, change your mind so. It's actually hard for me to come up with specific examples. I mean, a very a rather trivial example around COVID is mm. that, you know, my mind has been, I wouldn't say changed, but certainly, you know, around the whole thing around whether chloroquine is a treatment. I was very optimistic about it when I first was mooted, but you know, so far the, the evidence uh, seems to be that at least it's not a miracle cure that it had been first touted uh, as being. You know, there's sort of a lot of up and down on that, and of course, you know, there's this big uh, embarrassment uh, that WHO is going through right now because of a false uh, paper that was uh, published. But well, I mean, certainly I was very hopeful of it. The studies and, and, and the outcomes don't seem to be showing that it clears your body of COVID virus in three days as had been, you know, six days or whatever it was that had may been, uh, been touted. It may have some beneficial outcome, which I think, you know, they're doing a lot of studies and those will show, but certainly it's not proving to be the miracle you know, drug that we had
0: uh, hoped it. Would. The ask question is, uh, this is a cheeky one, you're quite active on Twitter. You're very engaging and also getting to debate and learn. And what has been your experience so far? And what is your thesis around the usage of Twitter, which seems to be fun and sometimes could be annoying as well?
1: Well, you know, for me, I think Twitter is, is an interesting place. To firstly to engage with people that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise engage with, and to do that in in a much easier manner. So, for example, I met quite a few people on Twitter. I've I've learned quite a lot on Twitter, and hopefully, uh, other people. Feel the same way about me. I've got quite a few followers, so I'm assuming that the people who choose to follow me get uh, get um, you know something out of it. I have to say that you know in the few years I've been on Twitter, I think it's become it's sort of deteriorated mm. in terms of the quality of the conversations. It's become much more. It's sort of in a way some aspects of it reflects. U.S. politics where you have people shouting, you know, past each other. So in that sense, it's become a bit more of a battleground um, rather than a place to share ideas. I think also it's become a little bit more, if I can say, um, commercialized. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe that's the wrong word, but I think people originally joined Twitter, you know, just to learn and to share and to get, you know, access to information. Now it's become a bit more for for many people a bit more of a of a profession, and that that sort of means that you know people are less sincere about what they're doing. People are much more biased and pushing that. So I, I think it's less of a pleasant experience nowadays. But I still learn quite a lot of it. Uh, get to interact with people that I, you know, probably normally wouldn't interact with and therefore get exposed to different points of view. So on balance, I think it's still, it's you know, a, it's still a positive.
0: Sorry, but I do think the polarizing views on Twitter, isn't that reflective of the society generally anyway? And Twitter just gives us the platform to do that in a bigger way than their bear-
1: part There's some degree of truth in what you say. And I think that one of the things, you know, with social media, not, not just Twitter, Is that people, in the beginning of it, people thought that social media would be a great way of exposing people to different points of view and maybe kind of mellowing the more extreme people. But actually, one of the things it does is that it allows people to find their own kind. You know, yeah. so if you are a racist, you will mm-hmm. find your racist. If you are a misogynist, you will find your misogynist Twitter. If you, are, you know, if you hate China, you will find your hating China, find your loving China Twitter, etc., um, etc. Et so actually, what it has what it has done is, it has allowed people to be more polarized in a way. I mean, yes. if you think about it, right, if you are living entirely in an offline world, you will be exposed to people uh, with all kinds of points of view, you know, by force, as we would say in Nigeria, you know, whereas, you know, if you take an extreme position, you could sit in your bedroom, you know, not interact with anyone, be on Twitter and other social media, just find out people who subscribe to your own narrow point of view and just live in that echo chamber. And that is something that you, you couldn't have done, or at least not quite as easily you know, in real life. So you're right that social media does, in a way, reflect the polarization that exists in, in real life. But I think the thing it does is it allows it to be kind of magnified and amplified in a way that it, it's it's harder to do in real life, and and I think that that's that's not necessarily a good thing. Yes.
0: It's been great talking to you. I know a lot of people don't forgive me if I don't ask this question about why when are you going to release the lock on your Twitter accounts to make people retweet you?
1: <laughs> so I don't think I'm ever going to do that, you know. <laughs> I it, it partly reflects, obviously my Twitter account was open uh, for quite a long time, but it just partly reflects the you know, some of the points I've been saying. First of all, I, I think I locked it because there were a lot of people who were following people, and I use that term in quotes, uh handles that were following me that looked rather like bots and, and those kind of things, and I, I really didn't want that. So I really wanted to filter those kind of people out and to have some control, you know, people who, who follow me, although I'm actually quite liberal in, in accepting follower requests, I should say. But also uh, a sort of side benefit was I found that, you know, it's more difficult. It's not impossible, but it's more difficult for people to retweet, retweet what you've said and forward it and, and what have you. So again, it gives some degree of control over yeah. where your message goes. I mean, I'm not naive enough to think it, it's total control, but it, it just makes it more difficult for, you know, things to be sort of retweeted and taken out of context. and and all that so yeah so I'm not intending to 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 to, to, that okay that's good sadly unfortunately for (laughs) people who want the opposite
0: that's fine Uh, but it's been good chatting to you actually I've learned a lot and hopefully we might have another conversation and maybe on, on different topics that I've written here that we couldn't dive into at this time but it's been a great conversation with you not at all thank you and my pleasure thanks for listening to this episode before you go i'd like you to subscribe for this show wherever you listening to your podcast and leave a review if you can you can also follow me on twitter at dr.ton that is d-r-d-o-t-u-n or through the website dr.ton.com